Luke 11, page 870, and we're going to begin reading at verse 29. When the crowds were increasing, Jesus began to say, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. No one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright, as when a lamp with its rays give you light. This is God's word. The great atheist philosopher Bertrand Russell, a well-known um, atheist philosopher, was once asked what he would say if he found himself at the gates of heaven and God said to him, why did you not believe in me? And Russell replied, I would say, not enough evidence, God, not enough evidence. I had a conversation recently with another dad at my children's school. Uh, it, was, it was a number of months ago, and um, the nature of the conversation, he had heard what I do for a living, and uh, he introduced himself as an atheist. It's an interesting way to introduce yourself, but that was, uh, that was good. He was obviously clear about what he wanted to do in this conversation, and so we got chatting. And in the course of the conversation, we talked about all kinds of different things. He was putting his position forward, and I was trying to show him that because he can't prove the origins of the universe, even by his beloved evolutionary theory, that he takes his atheism on faith. You know that, don't you? That whether you believe the world was created by God or whether it evolved from some kind of big bang many, many, many millions of years ago, none of us can empirically prove that those very first events happened. So everyone is, at root, a person of faith. We either believe according to uh, the testimony of others, whether it be science or whether it be uh, a creation. And he reluctantly conceded that this might be the case. But then he said, but you have not a shred of evidence for what you believe. Do you know people like that? I think that's really common. Perhaps you are someone who believes that yourself, and uh, you're, you're kind of investigating this, you're thinking to yourself, I need more evidence, and the, the, the skeptical uh, kind of approach, you're, you're trying to explore that. Well, I want to say, if that's you, you're in the right place this morning. Jesus engaging with precisely this question as we pick things up again in verse 29. When the crowds were increasing, Jesus began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign. When we met them last week, when Jesus miraculously healed this mute man, do you remember um, back in um, verse 14? Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and people marveled. We were told that some marveled, verse 14. We're told that some said he was in league with the devil, verse 15, and we dealt with that last week. But then there was this group who wanted to test him, we're told, and because they're trying to test him, they demand a sign. Verse 16. 
So last time we heard Jesus go after the bad logic of this idea that he was working with the devil. And here this warning continues to this group that want to test him. And he calls them this generation. They're his contemporaries. And they're demanding more evidence. Do something more dramatic. Do something, they say, and then I'll believe. Now, in my experience, there are people who uh, say this with sincerity. They ask for evidence, and then when they're pointed in the directions of the Gospels or uh, a church community uh, to pursue the claims of Jesus Christ, they follow those, and, and off they go. They make up their mind on the basis of what is held out to them. If you're a skeptic here this morning, like I say, you're very welcome. Um, everybody is welcome at Trinity West. Skeptics who are honestly seeking the truth are especially welcome. But it is usually the case that people who say this, that is, if God gave me a sign, if he really showed himself, then I believe. They usually do this, it seems to me, to avoid the issue. To avoid having to engage with what Jesus really says. They're not really interested in being convinced because they're setting out their own terms for how God should act. And so they do this in order to keep Jesus at arm's length. And that's clearly the sense that we get with this group. Luke tells us, verse 16, their motive in demanding a sign was to test Jesus. They're trying to play games with him. And uh, throughout his gospel, when Luke says that somebody demands a sign, it is always a negative thing. And of course, Jesus makes it explicit for us in verse 29. He calls them an evil generation because of this. So what we're dealing with this morning is how Jesus engages with this group of people who refuse to follow him and try to hide behind the idea that there's not enough evidence. He says two things. We have two points this morning, two big points. Number one, he says this, consider the sign you've been given and repent. That's the first bit, verses 30 to 32. Consider the sign you've been given and repent. This generation is an evil generation that seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. They say they want a sign. Well, says Jesus, I'm not going to be drawn into this. They've been given one already, the sign of Jonah. Now, it's true, and you'll know this if you've been with us over these weeks as we've gone through this section of Luke's gospel. In fact, right from the very beginning of the book, there's a sense in which all of these guys that have been following him have been given loads of signs of Jesus' power and authority. They've been given ample, credible evidence of his true identity as the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior. Luke has shown he's performed many miracles, including casting out the demon that uh, he did just a few minutes before these people say this. There is definitely something up, isn't there, when in full view, Jesus does this miracle, heals this mute man. He hasn't spoken for years, and he, he says something. Uh, the, 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 the guy is miraculously healed, and they go, nah, I don't know. See, like I've said, it isn't really about a willingness to believe if adequate evidence was provided, but it is their rationalizing their settled unwillingness to believe in the face of plenty of obvious evidence. But Jesus doesn't turn and say, look at all the miracles that I've done. Look at all the signs that you have seen done in your midst. Instead, he points them to the sign of Jonah. Now, if you are here a few weeks ago, you won't need me to tell you that Jonah was the prophet who God called to preach judgment and grace to the rebellious people of Nineveh. Nineveh was the gold standard of sinful cities at the time. And so Jonah didn't like this idea. So he says, go and speak to these people. And Jonah says, these people, they're really godless. 
actually, I don't like that idea, so he decides to buy a one-way ferry ticket in the opposite direction. But God intervenes, sends this large fish to swallow Jonah alive, and after three days in the belly of the fish, he repents of his sin and this rebellion, and the fish vomits him back up, and Jonah then proceeds to preach to Nineveh. And God's word goes out, and he sees huge repentance and huge turning to God in faith. And the sign of Jonah was what this uh, time inside the fish signified. And Matthew's gospel helps us with this. When he says, uh, Jesus in Matthew refers to the sign of Jonah, he says this, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus is saying, he's speaking about his own death and resurrection. And so verse 30 here in Luke 11, he says, For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. Son of Man, this favored title that Jesus uses to apply to himself. He's saying the sign of Jonah is the death and resurrection of Jesus. And God has given us here this morning that very same sign. See, how do we know that the gospel is true? How do we know that God was satisfied with the obedience of Jesus to take away our sins? How do we know that Jesus has the power over death and the power to grant eternal life to all who put their trust in him? The answer is, the answer to why we know those things is that God raised Christ Jesus from the dead. The sign that points to God's salvation in Jesus. What does the Apostle Paul say in 1 Corinthians 15? said, if there was no resurrection, everything's a waste of time. You're wasting yours, I'm wasting mine. But there was a resurrection, says Paul. And hundreds of eyewitnesses saw it, and it was written down so that we could know with the same confidence. Now, here's the thing. We ask, well, is this the knockdown argument that provides killer proof for the hardened skeptic? No. But as the philosopher Anthony Flew once said, Anthony Flew was, a, was a, an atheist who became a theist. He said this, The evidence for the resurrection is better than for claimed miracles in any other religion. It is outstandingly different in quality and quantity, I think, from the evidence offered from the occurrence of most other supposedly miraculous events. Jesus says, you want a sign, you've had a sign, the sign of Jonah. It points to my death and resurrection, and that's all you need. Not enough evidence, you say? The Son of Man, the one with divine authority and cosmic rule, says, look at his death and resurrection. Explore it. Follow the implications that it forces us to face. He says, there's all the evidence that you need. Well, you might come back and say, well, I wasn't there. I didn't see it. How can I know? Okay, but you weren't there for all kinds of things that have happened in history, but you live now as if they were true and as if they happened and you firmly believe that they did. This week, for example, when we stopped what we were doing as a nation on Tuesday at 11 o'clock to honor the memory of our fallen, did you say, I don't believe that the armistice happened. I wasn't there to see them sign that in November 1918. I don't believe this happened. No, you believe it happened. Why? Because others told you about it and the message has been passed on. I wasn't there. I wasn't actually present when Ireland thumped South Africa last Saturday at the Aviva Stadium in Dublin. But I believe that it happened. Why? Because I had the very good news proclaimed to me by others. 
They told me about the events. I asked them to recount them for me again and again, and I heard them, and I had lots of joy. These friends, these commentators that passed on the message, that passionately proclaimed the message to me, I took them at their word. The people of Nineveh, they weren't present when Jonah was in the belly of the fish. But they believed it happened and turned back to God as a result. Why? Because they took Jonah at his word. They heard the message and believed. And you notice that verse 32, it wasn't seeing Jonah in the fish that caused the Ninevites to repent. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. It was the people's response to Jonah's message that meant they escaped God's judgment. And it is with this in mind that we need to follow their example and take Jesus at his word and respond in the same way. Consider the sign that we've all been given. The empty cross and the empty tomb, they stand as a huge placard over all of human history, pointing to the truth about who Jesus is and why it is that he came. And we're supposed to consider that. Think about it. Consider the implications. And turn to him in repentance for our sin and faith in him. Jesus says, having made this point, uh, he then says that there are two examples. Uh, he uses two Old Testament examples to kind of ramp things up a bit. Queen, uh, verse 31, the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Queen of the south or um, she's also called the queen of Sheba. She traveled from Africa, which was literally the ends of the earth, with a pile of treasure to pay tribute to the wise and wealthy Solomon. We're told that in 1 Kings 10. And she was so impressed by him that she bowed down to his God, Yahweh. Luke tells us that she made this huge journey, Africa to Israel, before planes, before cars, before anything like that, because she wanted to hear Solomon's wisdom and because she sought the truth sincerely, she found God. Oh, what a contrast. This woman is set up against these, uh, this generation that Jesus is speaking to. Here is a pagan queen from outside of God's people who has made all of this journey, goes to these great lengths to have her questions answered, and here are these men standing in the very presence of Christ, one far greater, far wiser, far richer than King Solomon. You know, don't you? These guys are standing in the very presence of the King of Kings, the one whose kingdom spans the globe, the one whose riches are quite literally uncountable, and in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And they're standing in his presence, but they proudly reject him. As they stand in his presence, they stand against him. They've seen his miracles and they've heard his teaching and still they refuse to bow the knee in humble submission. And Jesus says, on the last day when the books are open, when the secrets of all of our hearts are laid bare, this pagan queen of the south will rise up. She'll rise up. The root word there is resurrection. That is, the image is that at the resurrection, when the dead in Christ are raised, she will rise up and her example will condemn these Jewish men because she went much farther for a much lesser king. The second example, verse 32, the men of Nineveh. Jesus says, they too will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, someone, something greater than Jonah is here. It won't just be the queen of the south who will testify against those who refuse to accept Jesus, but the godless Ninevites will as well. 
this notoriously immoral people. But when they heard the word that Jonah preached, they repented, they turned. And how much more should these crowds do this, given that Jesus, the greater prophet, is in their midst? So Jesus is saying to these Jewish contemporaries who have the privilege of being in his presence and witnessing everything that's going on, be warned. My death and resurrection, he's saying, point to the fact that judgment is coming. God has fixed the day when he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and by this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And on that day, pagan outsiders... It's Luke's agenda. Remember, all the way through, we see it again and again and again. Luke always has an eye on the obedience of the outsider against the hard-heartedness of Israel. Well, those outsiders will put to shame any who have not followed their example and given themselves to follow Christ. And he says, so repent. Repent. Turn back to Christ. Now, I suspect that few, if any of us this morning, are brazenly asking Jesus for a sign like this group were. If you are, Jesus has answered. You need to engage with what he says here. But as we said at the start, there are plenty in our day who do think like this, that we engage with when we leave this building week by week. And Jesus has given us here a lesson in how to engage with them. So we must ask, if there was more evidence, I would believe. You say, well, what do you make of the empty tomb? It all stands or falls at that point. What do you make of it? But more than that, I think it's true that some of us need to be reminded of these things to shore up our confidence in the gospel of a crucified and risen Christ. See, some people can sound so impressive as they seem to dismantle our arguments. And if we're on our own, perhaps with colleagues from school or when we're out with friends and the conversation gets a bit bullish, it can be a bit intimidating. We can lose our nerve. We can start to worry. Well, don't panic. Don't panic. Keep pointing people to Jesus. Ask them to deal with the resurrection. And remember that there is a day coming. No matter how it goes in that moment, remember that there is a day coming when you will be vindicated as the Son of Man holds you up and says, Well done. And those who mocked and humiliated you will see how terribly wrong they were. Keep going. Don't lose your nerve. So Jesus says, first up, consider the sign you've been given and repent. And Jesus then continues, and he uses a somewhat cryptic illustration. Uh, and he says, secondly, consider the light you've been given and receive. Consider the light you've been given and receive. Verses 33 to 36. He's making a similar point, though he's using a different picture. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright, as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. And what he's doing here is Jesus is emphasizing the culpability of those who refuse to respond to him. His public ministry has provided all the light that is needed for people to see him as he truly is. He hasn't done his works in secret. He hasn't hidden himself away in a cellar or under a basket. He hasn't hidden from others 
Quite the opposite. His words and his works have been publicly demonstrated for all to see right from the very start. History has been his stage on which he has done what he has done. So if we fail to see Jesus, it's not because he's keeping a low profile. The problem is not with him. Rather, the problem is that our eyes are too dim to see. Jesus describes the eye as the lamp of the body. That is, uh, the organ that gathers light and illuminates then the rest of the body. If it's clear, it does that. By contrast, then the opposite, verse 34, if the eye is bad, the light doesn't get in. And the whole body is in darkness. If you imagine a window that is clear, when the sun comes up, the light floods in. Well, if that window is dirty, you get the point, right? Jesus here is talking about spiritual perception, spiritual windows, spiritual lamps. The health of the body, he says, is determined by the content of what the eye takes in. If the eye is healthy, it takes in the light of God's word. When it is bad, it refuses to heed God's word and darkness then ensues. And do you notice it's a bit like last week where Jesus said that we were uh, either for him or against him and there was no third way. So here he's saying we're either in the light of God's truth or we're in spiritual darkness. It's one or the other. Again, there's no third way. And it's really interesting, I think. Uh, We've been told in our culture that it is those who throw off the shackles of Christianity who are the enlightened ones. But centuries after the revolution of human thought that was brought about by the so-called Enlightenment thinkers, I don't think anybody would look at Western society and say that we're any better off. Certainly not better off morally, certainly not better off socially. We're stuck as ever we were. So Jesus warns those of this generation who are demanding more revelation that the problem is not with the revelation, but rather with the spiritual darkness of their blind eyes. They say, Jesus, give us a sign, trying to shift the blame. If he was the Messiah, well, he could show us a sign on demand. But Jesus is shining brightly in their midst. He doesn't need to give them another sign. Very clear, very piercing light right in the midst of them. They can't shift the blame. It lies squarely at their door, a door of darkened unbelief. Some of you will know that uh, before I went into ministry. I was an estate agent. Uh, And I remember on one occasion going to value a house that had been owned by a hermit, Uh, somebody that hadn't left his house for 20 years or something like that. And as you can imagine, it was a very strange uh, property. He died and uh, the auctioneers wanted to sell it. They needed it valued and so on. So I, I went down to do this. And I went in And he'd covered the windows of the house with blankets and curtains and bin bags. He'd covered all the windows so that nothing from the outside could come in. Now, the sun still rose every morning, but he refused to receive that light. He kept chasing it, as it were, away because he wanted to live in darkness. And Jesus here is saying that these people are like that man. The light is there if they'll open their eyes to receive it. The problem isn't the light. The problem is that they have chosen darkness. And in doing that, they can't then deny that the light exists. Be like that hermit man saying, there's no such thing as sunshine because he lived in this dark world, a dark world of his own creation. And so Jesus is warning these 
Israelites. And the warning is no less pressing for us. You see, if there is darkness in our life, it is never the fault of the light of Christ. It is our inner nature. It is our sinfulness. And it's what we expose that nature to that prevents the light from radiating in and renewing our lives. So we need to consider the light that we've been given and receive the one who brings it. Don't wander around in self-imposed darkness any longer. Don't invest yourself in things that cultivate that darkness in your soul and so cause you to keep Jesus at arm's length. You can see him. It is patently obvious who he is. But still you hold back because you don't want to bring certain areas of your life out of the darkness into the light. You refuse to allow the light of the gospel of Christ to shine on the, these things. Habits, lifestyle choices, relationships. You'll know what it is in your life. You won't let the light of Christ chase away the darkness because you actually like the darkness. The problem isn't with Christ. The problem is with you, with us. We know who he is. But we won't allow his light to, uh, to illuminate our lives. And just as those who demanded a sign did so because they wanted to avoid the demands of Christ, so we need to be careful that we don't refuse the light of God's word, his influence in our lives in order to do the same. Receive the one who is light and life and allow the Holy Spirit to open your eyes more and more to see the full brightness of his salvation. Let's choose to allow the light of Christ to illuminate all of the dark corners of our lives, to chase away the shadows. When, when a light goes on in a room, a room that was once dark is no longer dark. Darkness is, is sent packing. And that's what Christ does as we let him into our lives. And as we allow him by his Holy Spirit to, to transform our hearts and to take hold of our lives. As we do that, we're increasingly obedient to him, but also, did you see, verse 36, when we are full of light, having no part dark, we become a light to others. The church of Jesus Christ has from the beginning been designed to be a community of light that is planted into communities of darkness so that the light of the gospel might shine out, that people might see us the way that we live, the values that we hold, the words that we proclaim, and in and through that, they might see the Christ that we worship and find him for themselves. You see, when our lives are fully submitted to Christ, to put it as it was last week in verse 28, that is, as we hear the word of God and keep it as individuals and as a church, that is, as we repent of sin and as we receive the light of Christ for ourselves, so we will begin to illuminate the way for others. That they would find their way out of the darkness into the blessing of the marvelous, life-giving light of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we praise you for... The grace that you've shown us in Christ, we praise you for the light that he brings to the world. We pray that we might surrender ourselves more fully to him, that in obedience to him, we might become a light to the nations as you've designed us to be. Thank you for that high calling as the church, and we pray that together we might uh, direct many to the light of Christ, that they might find salvation in him. We recognize that your grace extends 
to the godless and to those who are far off. We pray that the nations might come and hear of Christ and find salvation in him through us here. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.